Hello, welcome back to a new episode of For the Love of Weather podcast, where we discuss all things weather and how they can impact our daily lives. We hope that you leave this episode loving the weather just that little bit more. My name is Gemma. Hello, everybody. And my name is Ashling. And tonight we have, well, this is, every guest is a special guest, but this is a topic particularly close to my heart, <laughs> wine. <laughs> we have our first winemaker on the podcast. We're really excited. Please welcome Peter McCauley. He's a winemaker and has spent the last five years traveling between the North and the South Hemisphere for Harvard seasons, spending most of his time in New Zealand and Australia, but also in South Africa. And I'm pretty sure we all have had a glass or two or a tipple from all of these places. But interestingly, and perhaps most interestingly, you're currently a winemaker at Chapeldown, which is in Kent, which is the UK's largest sparkling wine producer and recently shortlisted for the IWSC Emerging Wine Talent Awards. Absolutely huge honour. And on top of all of this, now this is probably the best part because I had to actually go and Google what this was. You are studying for a master's in enology, which is the study of wine. Is that correct? It is, yes. And viticulture, which is the study of grape cultivation. Like who knew there was even a master's in these things? Fascinating. Just from that introduction, I have like a million questions already circling in my head. I'm going to, Jamie, you're going to have to pace me, <laughs> pace me on this one. Peter, you're so very welcome to our podcast this evening. Oh, thank you so much. It's, uh, it's wonderful to be here. I've been, um, I've been really enjoying your previous episodes recently as well. Um, oh, we love you even more. <laughs> no, I've, been, um, I've been out and about recently, so I had to go to London for a few tastings and whatnot because it's a hard life. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so you uh, you kept me very very well entertained on the train over there yesterday in particular. So yeah, thank oh, you for having cool. me. Cool, we were very very welcome. So we always started our podcast asking our guests, where did your very first spark of joy, spark of love, come from that you knew you were going to go and work with wine? Ooh, with wine. Um, it was shortly after I moved. Well, actually, no. So when I first met my now wife, actually, so we've been together 11 years, we've been married for one. I started going around to her parents' house for Sunday dinner, which was like quite a tradition um, of theirs. And it was there that I was kind of first given wine, really. Like, and, you know, I was... Uh, I was what 18 years old at the time so you drink your beer or you go out to town you drink vodka chasers or something like that um so it wasn't until we started drinking um red wine with dinner that I suddenly started thinking oh actually this is quite nice I feel I feel so grown up I feel so elegant um and then yeah that we so we worked in hospitality for a number of years and it wasn't until we moved to New Zealand um and they have you know quite a as you've probably uh, tasted they've got a very very good wine industry and you just noticed immediately the general knowledge um, of your average New Zealand um, drinker or if you go out for um, dinner customer is just so much more knowledgeable about wine because they have that industry there the education is just there as well so suddenly we have to start doing a little bit more research a bit more training around wine and um, I just thought oh this is it, this, this is it, because this is so complex and it's this beautiful blend between, you know, on the, on the sales side and the marketing side and the tasting side, it, it comes across very elegant. And then the more research you do into it and the more research you kind of, uh, or the more you learn, you suddenly realise that you know, the, the winemakers that are supposedly these, you know, incredible people, 
well, I don't mean that about myself, but, um, you know, when you start learning, you kind of like, oh my, there are these French winemakers and they're rock stars and they're so cool. And then you do a bit more reading and they're just farmers um, and they're just real agricultural people because, you know, if you want to make a great wine, it starts in the soil. So that's where you have to start. Um, so it was that kind of, yeah, about 2014. Yeah, when we just moved to New Zealand, I thought, right, this is it. Wine is my direction. It's uh, It blends, you know, my two favorite things, which are kind of drinking good wine and agriculture. Actually, my first ever job was a sheepdog um, in, in Lancashire. So the uh, and that, that was the moment that I knew I wanted to kind of I, I wanted to be a farmer um, or I wanted to work in agriculture. I wanted to work outside and I wanted to get my hands dirty. And a family friend of ours, his sheepdog had unfortunately been hit by a car. And he didn't have the money really to kind of buy an all-terrain vehicle so he could do that. So he paid me and my brothers and his sons to run around a field and, um, and shepherd all his, his, uh, his sheep in. So, yeah, on my CV, I've gotten rid of it now. But um, for a while, I thought about having some fun with job applications. My first ever job was sheepdog. So... <laughs> you know, you might say, you know, I know that's a fantastic story, but actually there are so many wonderful lessons in that. You know the value of hard work and you also know the value of stock to a farmer and you know how much work goes into getting something from A to B. So actually it's quite a noble first job. I mean, I'll take it. It definitely works. Uh, it's better than some first jobs. I definitely say that. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty, it pretty interesting. But I think I'm probably most surprised that you're actually a winemaker in the UK. Should we like be surprised by that? I mean, I, to be fair, I was. It wasn't until, I mean, so I grew up in Lancashire in the Northwest. And, you know, for, I think I was, what, 20, 23 when I left? 22, 23? Um, yeah, so for the first 22 years of my life, I had no idea that the UK made wine. And it wasn't until I moved to New Zealand, I started studying, I started doing uh, more research that I actually realised that the UK made wine. Um, and then it wasn't even until I think 20, 2019, I drank my first English wine. It was actually um, a bottle from a winery called Gusborne, uh, where my wife works now. So um, that was pretty special. And I think that first glass when suddenly I thought, I, I was thinking oh, it's the UK, it's cold climate they're going to struggle to make good wine. And then I tasted my first glass and suddenly realized that, oh, wait, no, no, they're a serious wine industry and they're making some really, really brilliant wine. So yeah, it, it was a surprise to me as well to find out that I moved halfway across the world to, to learn how to do something I could have driven five hours south to do. Um, so yeah, it was a, it's, it's a very, very young industry. It's very, very, um, yeah, it's, it's up and coming and, I think not a lot of people know about it. They're starting to get a bit more global traction. People are starting to take a little bit more notice of, of the UK wine industry. Um, and I think our biggest challenge is, is kind of at-home education because there's so many people across the UK that still don't know that we make wine. I mean, the only reason I knew it is because I worked in wine. Your average punter down the pub probably doesn't quite know or, or think about that sort of thing. Or think that it's going to be nice if it's mm. made in the UK. Yeah, it's, um, I, I'm not sure whether or not it's just the national psyche of made in the UK. It's like, oh, that's probably a bit rubbish then. Um, we, I feel like maybe as a nation, we do tend to be a bit self-deprecating. Can, uh, can you make wine in the UK anywhere? Or are there certain parts of the UK that is better suited weather-wise or climate-wise to make the wine? 
yeah, there, there definitely are areas in the UK where you cannot make wine. I think it, it's definitely um, in the South. I mean, I say in the South, there are actually, I think, a handful of vineyards in Yorkshire. Um, oh. Yeah, they're, they're mainly working with um, peewee varieties, which are these hybrids that have been uh, crossbred for uh, basically to, so that they can be ripened in areas where, you know, your more traditional varietals would not be able to ripen. Um, so, yeah, there are some people doing it in Wales, um, some in Yorkshire, but they are definitely the exception that proves the rule. Your, your biggest wine regions down here is uh, Kent, East Sussex, Hampshire, and Essex is starting to get a little bit more well-known now. But um, yeah, you're basically looking around that southern, southeastern um, area of the UK, um, where we tend to be slightly drier. We tend to have kind of more growing degree days, um, which is kind of your average temperature um, for vine production, basically. I could um, rather boringly tell you that there's an average of 610 millimetres of rain on average in Kent a year. I have no <laughs> idea why I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> but I do. I have a good old stab across the UK and stuff. I was really interested to hear you say that, you know, the far, you know, the, the, these experts that grow our wine are really just farmers, but obviously, you know, their title is farmer, mm-hmm. but there must be so much more to it than that. To, you know, I mean, to, and also the, passion you must have to do that that is hard graft it it really is yeah I mean and every period of the year has its own challenges you know for example uh, the period we're going through now at the moment um so spring you've got bud burst so the vines start waking up after dormancy because uh, the vines are perennials um so they have they have a vegetative cycle and they also have a reproductive cycle your vegetative cycle spans a year and your reproductive cycle spans two years so it's kind of um, your your season um, or, or your growing season will directly correlate or directly influence the next season's fruit set. So does um, that mean that you only harvest every number of years? Or? So we harvest a year, uh, one year. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, we harvest every year, but the the vine essentially uh, kind of yeah. will work out or it will kind of um, figure out how much fruit is going to be set for the following year based on the what um, inflorescence really so um yeah we harvest every year so um your the fruit that we harvest for wine is part of the vegetative cycle and the reproductive cycle i think it spans about 15 to 18 months um but we kind of just say two years and that influences so during that kind of uh, vegetative cycle you'll also have the start of the reproductive cycle for the yeah the following year Anything that you do throughout the year, let's say, you know, something bad happens and um, you lose all your crop for that year, you know, with uh, bad frosts or, or something like that. It is still in your best interest to manage those vines as best you can for the following year, because that period of time will influence how much fruit and the quality of fruit that you will get the following year. Um, and it takes an enormous amount of effort. So particularly with uh, frosts. Yeah. Um, you might have seen the um, the pictures in Champagne of the mm-hmm. hills at night with all the candles uh, lit and all the fires going. You know, those, those uh, poor viticulturists, they're getting up at 1am, 2am, and they're spending their entire night in an absolutely freezing vineyard, uh, lighting and maintaining those fires to basically prevent 
frost damage to, to the buds really because as uh, as bud bursts in spring that's when the player that's when the vine is at its absolutely most vulnerable um, a frost can come we have various different frosts and you can manage them slightly different ways but yeah the uh it's that's the point which is really quite scary because you could lose your entire crop mm. you know in one night if you if you weren't on it or if yeah, if there was a particularly bad frost there are uh, two different types in viticulture to be honest radiation is easier to manage because that is just a kind of cold air, cold air and warm on top so if you can start disturbing that um through frost frost fans um, sometimes you can get kind of warm air cannons and you drive a tractor around all night. You can light the bougies, which are those candles that you'll, you'll mm. see just to disturb the air. Or you can also, you know, if, if you're lucky enough to have a really good site, what you can do is uh, plant in a certain way to kind of main, uh, it's called cold air drainage. So if you plant down a hill, that cold air is just going to roll on down the hill. And what you want to make sure is that you don't have kind of hedgerows or trees at the bottom, which will pull that catabatic drainage um, ah, i didn't know it was called that we always call it cold air drainage but mm, I, i'm going to make a note of that so i sound yeah. a bit better and <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah so it is it, it's an enormous amount of work um yeah around now unfortunately you know in the uk we have slightly high disease pressure so spraying sometimes is is necessary mm. a lot of people are working around not using pesticides and herbicides uh, but there are still sulfur sprays that you need to kind of apply for for certain diseases, which I mean, as far as if, if you look at in comparison to herbicide and insecticide, doesn't have as much of a negative impact. But it is unfortunately the nature of the beast that you do have to make certain decisions for with farming. So you mentioned there was a number of different types of um, frost that you're concerned about. So or, so cool nights, so radiation nights. Is there anything else? Then? What um, was the other one? Advection. Advection is mm. the real scary one. Um, there's only really one way to protect from advection frost from a viticultural perspective, and that is a sprinkler system. So um, you may have seen some pictures from New Zealand, central Otago, because they have such uh, they're quite high altitude. They're a high desert. Mm. Um, they can get some really, really bad frosts, um, particularly in spring. So um, the way that that works is you'll have an irrigation system just uh, set above your fruiting wire. And what you, the, the vineyard manager will do is, you know, if, if they've got a, um, a frost incoming, they'll turn on the sprinkler system to basically drip down the vine. Um, and what that water does is when the infection comes through, it freezes um, over the vine. You're basically kind of protecting the bud by freezing water around the bud. And the exothermic reaction of freezing keeps the bud safe um, and keeps it from being damaged beyond repair so it's um it's a really i don't the person that came up with this is just a better person than I am. Like, who oh. goes right let's freeze it to protect it i have no idea but it's, it's really really wonderful but it is slightly um it's it's hard to set up it takes quite a lot of infrastructure and um, to get that set up and if you've got a lot of vineyards then it's a lot of work but Everything in this culture is a lot of work, but we do it for, for the passion, for the fun. It's because we love it. So, yes. yeah. That's absolutely fascinating. I, like, it feels like what you're saying is that you're basically living on a knife edge most of the time. Yeah. Us and the rest of the agricultural to... world, really. It's, um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it can be really difficult. Yeah, there's, yeah, there are lots of kind of bad days in, in, in agriculture in, in any form of agriculture like you, you get your bad days and you get your good days um, you get your good years and you get your bad years but it is yeah it, particularly in in your cold climates 
or your marginal climates like the UK, it's even harder because everything is just so kind of, it has to be so precise. And yeah, you're, you're making wine in a region that is not traditionally designed for it. The, the environment isn't traditional. Mm-hmm. They're, not, they're not native species. So, you know, we, we have to interfere with the, the natural environment to, to make this work. So speak, speaking of the environment, so like I'm imagining in my head, like these fields of vineyards, do you then kind of develop this relationship with that land where you understand the real local, local detail to that, that no possible forecast model will ever really get? Like, do you ever look at the weather and think, but I know that's not going to affect us that way? You know, where you, you get so familiar with the land that you're working with in that specific little, like, is there a part of the field that gets colder than another part of the field, you know? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, I mean, microclimates they are yeah they're they're a real thing um and a good vineyard manager that's uh, or a good viticulturist that's you know worked that land for a long time knows all the ins and outs and the intricacies um you know even down to what sort of predators live are one side of the field as opposed to the other um, oh we never have bird damage um during harvest on that field because you know the starlings won't go anywhere near that because we've got a hawk living in that um in that field that one we need to bird net so because there's nothing living over there even down to like your soil structure and your soil health precision viticulture is a bit of a movement that's taking it's already taken off um, but a lot of people are putting a lot more stock in it at the moment um, and that kind of is based on soil analysis for nutrients so you you know obviously the fields they're not homogenous so you might have high nitrogen levels in your soil at, um, you know, in one half of the field. And as you work your way down, completely different. So a lot of um, viticulturists, I mean, they know that that's more fertile than that side. But now we're able to actually, you know, analyze the soil and get fairly, fairly intricate details. You're able to kind of look at reducing spraying, reducing uh, fertilization. Which, you know, if you think about, I think... I used to know the statistic, but fertilization and the production thereof amounts for just a disgusting uh, portion of, of global um, of greenhouse gas emissions. It's it's terrifying. Mm. Um, so anything that anyone can do to reduce that sort of thing is just fantastic. And yeah, by using that knowledge, by using that intricate um, relationship that you have with your own land, if you can do that, then it's the best way to go. And we need to start preserving these these lands. Mm. Is there ever a moment where you can relax? Um, I'd say maybe a couple of weeks after harvest, once everything's in the winery and it's made, and all you need to do is just wait for, uh, once for all the fermentations are finished, you can then maybe take a step back. It's usually when maybe you'll look at going on holiday. Winter is quite nice as well. So once those vines go dormant, obviously we need to start pruning. Post-senescence, we need to make sure that all the nutrients from um from photosynthesis during the growing season gets transported back to the root structure uh, sorry the trunk and roots yeah you you basically have to prune them back Uh, once they're pruned then you can kind of start to relax maybe a little bit but it kind of depends on your scale I mean if you're a viticulturist managing an enormous amount of vines then by the time you finish that job you need to start the next job um, before you can kind of get get going so I think small small scale um, winemaking you you tend to have yeah a few periods kind of in between i think it's the transitional periods of the seasons you know kind of winter to spring spring to summer that you tend to be your busier periods and then obviously summer to 
uh, autumn tends to be the busiest with with harvest so yeah they they tend to be your your busier times of the year and you can relax but never for very long unfortunately but it's uh it's the nature of the beast how do you see the winemaking industry going forward in the future here in the uk and i'm when i'm saying that i'm really asking you about what do what does a viticulturist think about climate change so there's a bit of a running joke that climate like there are there are no winners in climate or there are very few winners in climate change but the uk wine industry is one um, because you know we're able to ripen fruit that maybe 20 years ago we weren't able to ripen whilst it's kind of yeah it's a funny soundbite to say that it, it isn't that's not the case we're about 60 years behind um champagne's climate so i think there's there's some data to suggest that yeah our climate's very similar to champagne 60 years ago and an issue that champagne have at the moment um, is that they're producing higher alcohols because because it's warmer because um, they're getting more growing degree days they are they're producing slightly higher alcohol it's giving their wines a little bit more body um, and kind of they're, they're like stylistically maybe moving away um, from that kind of traditional high acid kind of lean style of wine so which you kind of it is a problem because you know, that's what Champagne made its made its, mm. its name on. You know, we're if we're sixty years behind them, sixty years in the future, we're going to start having those problems as well. Um, I've been reading recently a quite an interesting paper, which is kind of a climate change model for the UK viticulture. In that, it suggests you know we're going to be growing things like Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon in you know, 50, 60 years in in places like Essex, and you you think about the temperatures required. And, and the season required to, to grow those sorts of varietals in the UK is just ridiculous. So um, I don't know anything about, about that. Yeah. But I do know that I absolutely love a Cabernet Sauvignon. And I have no idea why. Yeah. I just know that that is what I, when I take that little sip, you know, it just, mm-hmm. like, I love it. I love yeah. it. Why is that? What, what is it that makes it, like, what am I, what am I experiencing? Yeah, well, it's. I mean, it's. It's certainly one of the more famous varietals. You know, it's. Um, it makes up an enormous part of Bordeaux um, okay. blends, and then the New World as well. You've got places like Margaret River in Australia, which produce some some gorgeous um, mm. styles. But I think the big thing with Cabernet Sauvignon is it has thick skins. Um, now, within the berry of a skin, you have things called tannins. Um, now. Uh, you ever made a cup of tea and you've left the the bag in just a little bit too long and you get that kind of drying sensation that's caused by tannin um so with cabernet sauvignon in particular because it's this big red fruit that um is grown in very very warm climates it tends to have lots of fruit presence lots of body lot high alcohol big jammy sorts of flavors and then it also has these tannins which kind of give it this structure this grip in the mouth and it tends to balance things out really well so if grown really well cabernet sauvignon can be a fantastic fantastic uh, wine and yeah it's certainly i'd say it's one of the more elegant varietals out there and it, it it makes some of the world's best wine like cabernet sauvignon easily goes into some of the most prestigious wines in the world um, so you've obviously just got expensive taste it's <laughs> got really great taste what can, what can i say I, I didn't really I never it's only in recent years I've actually realized that that is the type of wine that I like but I have no idea why it's a bit like art isn't it you oh, don't yeah. know why you enjoy it but you just uh well obviously you do understand it but I don't I just know that, that is a wine that 
regardless of the brand, I'm probably going to enjoy it over, mm-hmm. let's say, for me, a Merlot. Yeah. If you uh, if you or try to go, or something yeah. like that. They they tend to kind of um I've noticed in particular with Cabernet Sauvignon, it, it tends to be influenced by um, the location it's grown in more than certain varietals. Um, so for example, if you try a um, a Cabernet Sauvignon from Australia, any particularly if you wines up from maybe Kunawara um, in the Barossa or even some in Margaret River you've got a lot more eucalypt in um, in Australia and particularly if you've got eucalypt in the vineyard or surrounding the vineyard you do start to get these menthol slight essences coming through in the finished wine um, it's really quite interesting because you, you know you start analyzing these wines and you start looking for the chemical compounds that are present in this um, in in the the wine and you know it's the same chemical compounds that are in eucalypt uh, in in their leaves and it's remarkable that you can go right well we've got eucalypt growing all along the vineyard 50 meters from the vines and yet you know through the soil through microbiology through you know the absolute miracle that is nature mm. you've got you know these chemical compounds finding themselves into a finished wine um, that give you a real essence of where where that uh, fruit was grown where the wine was made Full disclosure as well, I also love a Pinot Noir. Fantastic. <laughs> Pinot Noir is one of my favourites. If someone said you can only drink one red wine for the rest of your life, it would it would be Pinot Noir. It was probably the first red wine that I remember. You know, your palate develops as you as you get older. And also, I never had any experience of wine growing up. I you know, came from a house where people didn't drink. So, you know, it was only when I got into my 20s, I started to, like, experience wine. And I remember distinctly having a Pinot Noir and thinking... Oh, maybe red wine isn't so bad you know and, yeah. and sort of from there it went on obviously to my much higher taste of Cabernet Sauvignon <laughs> <laughs> so I, I kind of went the opposite way so I was big I wanted big heavy reds when I first started but then you know after six seven years of making wine suddenly you know your palate starts to crave more subtle flavors because you have to taste so often that it does get yeah. to the point where you know you you want a little bit more lighter bodied and so at the moment I'm particularly enjoying light bodied reds mainly because if we're going to make any red wine in the UK it's going to be light bodied and hopefully we never make big cabs of uh, cab sabs in England hopefully we yeah, fix yeah. climate change before it gets to that that point you know if you want a cab sub just buy one from Australia it's fine like we don't need to grow it here we'll, mm. we'll keep doing what we're doing let's fix the planet first tell us a little bit more about viticulture yeah it's far more complex than I ever, ever thought. Um, it is, I mean, the, the microbiology involved in it is, is crazy. You can take a small, like we, and we, we just don't know everything. That's the, the most frustrating thing is that, you know, I, I can well, spend the rest of my, my career working, you know, well, a combination of the winery and the vineyard. And I'll, I'll retire not knowing everything. I'll retire still kind of you know, just wondering why certain things are the way that they are. We don't tend to kind of understand how certain elements find themselves into the vine. We kind of are still trying to figure out rootstocks. I mean, we, we know, for example, that certain rootstocks affect, I suppose, maybe I should explain rootstocks just a little bit first, um, just as far as viticulture goes. The issue that we constantly tend to be fighting against with, with growing vines is that each environment that you're planting in is completely unique. Different varietals like Chardonnay or Pinot Noir require slightly different parameters for growing um, and different soil structures affect things quite
quite considerably as well. So let's say you've got um, a very, very fertile field. Um, your vines are going to be very, very vigorous. If they're vigorous, then there's a lot of kind of leaf growth, which basically stunts fruit. Um, so you're going to get far less fruit and the, the vine's going to put far more energy into um, producing, producing leaf. So what you want to do at that point is you want to limit vigor. So we've over the years generated uh, the technology to kind of produce low vigor rootstocks, which limit nutrient uptake, they limit water uptake, but we don't understand why they do it. We just know that they do it. So um, I think there's a lot of research going into kind of uh, gene expression, root conductivity, that sort of thing. But at the moment, we still kind of struggle to understand the, the mechanics of, of how we can affect vine growth through, through this sort of thing. Yeah, so it's ongoing. I've been trying to kind of, I think, the papers that I was reading, which starting to kind of get a bit of traction, published in 20, 2020, 2021. So yeah, it's kind of, it's ongoing. Hopefully we'll get there eventually. But yeah, viticulture is just, I think it's a beautiful blend of very, very serious microbiology, chemistry, and, you know, an almost kind of artistic agricultural sort of pursuit. I think for, for all your research and precision and analysis, I think uh, a good viticulture's kind of gut feelings in, in the field go a long, long way. And that kind of generational knowledge, that generation, generational experience um, that certain people have is kind of, I think, worth its weight in gold. So you must work outside a lot. Yes, I, um, I regularly get home. And as soon as I get inside, my face just flushes and red because uh, I think two thirds of our winery is outside. Obviously, the vineyards outside. Yeah, it's uh, it's you spend a lot of time in the elements, which you know, in places like Margaret River where I've worked, not so bad because you're outside in the sun. It's gorgeous. The winters are quite mild. Kent can get quite cold. Yeah, so when you're kind of working in the winery at minus three, it's uh, yeah, it it gets it's pretty nippy. Carhartt, Carhartt's a wonderful thing. It's um, it's very trendy now, but they they produce some ridiculously warm weather work gear. So I am. Um, if anyone from Kaha is listening, I am open to sponsorship, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Here, me too, me too. Yeah. But actually, where, what I was wondering was, how, as somebody who's going to be working outside, how do you keep your skin protected? Um, sun cream, yeah. So even in um, spring, you kind of, it's easier, it's easier to do in summer, but I think the biggest issue that you tend to have is you start to forget about, if it's not warm, you kind of don't think about it too much. But yeah, sun cream... I use I go through quite a lot of sun cream actually. As much sun cream as I put on, I still end up with a farmer's tan. Um, yeah. yeah, and then I kind of I'll find myself I'll go on a holiday and I genuinely find myself sun creaming up the um, the white bits with like a lower SPF and and my farmer's tan with a higher SPF, just trying to even it out. <laughs> Never works. I always look silly, but um, yeah, you've got to try. <laughs> I swear, I kid you not, my legs are like basically reflective really like, I swear to god like I actually remember being out reporting one time with a very good um an amazing reporter a good pal her name is Kate Prout and we were doing a piece on climate change but also it was sunny as well it's a really hard balance to get and I stepped out of the car and she actually said to me what happened there <laughs> I was like that's just the way they are I could literally yeah. leave them out and they just they're they're basically reflective they're a little bit shocking <laughs> so. 
<laughs> I don't even I don't even bother. <laughs> I tend to I I I can tan quite well. I'm not super pasty. I um can kind of get away with it a little bit. My wife is definitely that classic English rose pale type hair. Yeah, just kind of goes out once and suddenly she's burnt. It's um yeah. That's challenging though, because that's like actually quite a concern, you know, as the sun is getting stronger. And also we're getting more of these like points where the UV index is much stronger. So at the moment across channel, there's a really high UV index there because of the the ozone layer is thinner. Mm. And I'm guessing that is actually something that, you know, as you go forward in your career, you're gonna have to consider, you know, really I don't know. It must be yeah, yeah, it's like an occupational hazard, right? There are, yeah. Um, I think much in the same way as yeah. Again, a lot. There are a lot of correlations between um, various agricultural um, industries mm-hmm. and, and visible. I mean, it is one. Yeah, it's definitely long-term health effects of. I think because it's production-based, because you you know you you creating something, you you using certain chemicals, you are using certain um, things that long-term health effects are something to actually consider. So we use potassium metabisulfate, which, you know, when you when you're reading like a you find it on anything. So have a look at your orange juice. It'll say contains sulfides. It's, it's basically just it's, it's sulfur, really. But it protects the wine from oxidation and microbial activity. I think there's a bit of a there's so there are some movements to kind of uh, produce low sulfide or no sulfide wines. You know, you're you're, you're going to have. I think there's like three times, four times as much um, sulfur, uh, sulfites in orange juice than there is wine. It, it's not necessarily something to be scared about. But when you're using it in its kind of dry form before it's diluted, before you kind of hydrate it in, into solution, yeah, there are kind of, there's not too much research into the long term effects of, of breathing that sort of thing in. So um, to be safe, we, we have regulators so that we can protect our kind of respiratory system um you know just in case you don't want to get 50 years down the line and suddenly someone publishes some data that says you know this stuff's almost as bad as asbestos for you like you just never know what's going to happen so i think protection is is the most important thing um protecting your workers protecting yeah everyone because it's it's the sort of work you do long term it's not um it's not something you hop in and out of it's Mm. you, you dedicate your life to it really it's um you know let's say my career lasts 60 years that's 60 harvests 60 vintages of wine I'll ever make you know as far as considering it's my passion that seems like it's not enough I want more than that I want to be able to make more wine but I can't I can only make you know one a year sort of thing so yeah it's uh it's something to consider definitely and I think working outside um for a lot of people protection and safety is really paramount um, there's a lot of things that can go wrong in farming you know you think about tractors machinery um, yeah it's definitely something to consider this is probably going to be very dependent on what wine you like but if you had to recommend one place to go to do wine tasting where should I book and go <laughs> that's a good one I'm I'm probably going to say Margaret River in Western Australia I is that, in, is that in near Perth it is yeah so three hours three hours south of Perth hmm. it's it's one of my favorite places in the world it's you've got this gorgeous coastline you've got these beautiful forests i think if you go um a little bit further south southeast you can go to these kind of um like forests with these enormous yarrow trees they are ridiculous i mean they're not quite as big as like the uh, the redwoods but they're still 
I mean, they're up there. It's it's a remarkable, remarkable place. It's, it feels wild still. It feels untouched. But as far as the wine goes, you've got such a variety of, of styles over there. They're very, very lucky. They've got very low disease pressure. And um, they are still, I mean, they're not struggling as much as certain areas of Australia are uh, with climate. Um, they've got this um, breeze called the Fremantle Doctor that comes in, I'd say, about it's about half past two, three o'clock most afternoons, just rolls in off the air, off the coast, cools everything down. It's absolutely beautiful. When you're working in the vineyard and you feel it coming, you're like, oh, yeah, I've been waiting for this. And that cooling down of the fruit is, is really, really important for um, for the quality as well. So particularly in Australia, where it's very, very warm, you know, you, you, you're risking sunburn to certain to, to the fruit. You kind of you don't want heat stress for the vine and that kind of influx of cold air just like cools everything down vine settles down can kind of go to sleep for the night slightly and just relax a little bit and then you know it warms up the next day and then it cools it down all over again who knew Um, a sea breeze could be so effective that's incredible good for the soul and good for the fruit yeah sounds like it's making me want to go and drink a lot of wine (laughs) oh you should (laughs) go to margaret river they've got gorgeous chardonnay they've got um beautiful sauvignon blanc with some semillon as well um, which is very similar to Bordeaux whites. Um, and then you've also got your Merlot, your Cabernet Sauvignons. They've even got a bit of Malbec. A few people are starting to play around with some Syrah. Um, and I think they've actually just opened their first sparkling wine house. Um, so winery called Vaz Felix. They, they basically bought out a winery to turn into, um, actually it must be Western Australia's first purely dedicated sparkling house um haven't tasted any of their wine yet i think they probably haven't been going long enough to actually have a release date yet uh, because it it takes you know about three years to create a bottle of sparkling wine as opposed to you know maybe one um for still so um yeah you would have a really yeah it's making me think about my (laughs) sparkling wine a lot differently my goodness yeah because i mean with with still wine you make you make the wine uh, and then the wine's ready. With sparkling wine, you have to, or at least the traditional method, which is the champagne method, you make a base wine, much in the same way you'd make a normal wine. It has slightly different parameters. Your alcohol needs to be lower. Um, your acids tend to be higher. But then you have to put it through a secondary fermentation in the bottle. Um, and it's that secondary fermentation in a sealed bottle which generates the CO2, which makes it sparkling. So the yeast consume the sugars. They produce alcohol and carbon dioxide the carbon dioxide is dissolved into the wine and then when you open it that's released and that's why you you get your bubbles Um, but it takes yeah so you want say a minimum of probably around 18 months once you've once you put that through secondary fermentation you've put it in bottle that wine needs to be aged at that point so once the yeast die they kind of their dead cells will remain in the bottle as lees um, so you might ever hear people talk about lees aging um, and what lees aging does is it generates kind of a bit more body, a bit more texture, a bit more kind of richness or softness sometimes to the wine. And that's why, you know, when you taste champagne and sometimes you get those kind of toasty brioche qualities to it, um, that's caused by autolysis, which is, is basically the degradation of those yeast cells. Um, and the longer you leave that in bottle, then the greater those qualities are going to be. And 
I think a lot of people put um, put a lot of stock in those sorts of characteristics uh, for sparkling wine and and how premium it can be by you know, aging on leaves longer. So you know, you're not seeing a return on your investment from the fruit, the effort you've put in, you know, the winemaking process. It's, it's sitting in a warehouse at, in a temperature controlled room for up to three to five years before it, it gets on your table, gets put in your fridge. So it takes a long, long time. And that's one of the reasons why sparkling wine is more expensive is the amount of effort that goes into producing it. I have a question for you. I realize I've hogged most of the podcast. Why are you not a sommelier? Um, farmer at heart. I, uh, yeah. I just, I needed to get my hands dirty. I, um, really, really had to, um, I used to work in hospitality, mm. loved it. Absolutely loved it. I mean, I probably work less hours and, and probably make more money if I did that, to be honest. But, um, yeah, I think it's just it's yeah. good for the soul being outside, getting my hands dirty, kind of feeling, you know, you kind of get the soil between your fingers, you kind of get that link and, you know, and I think the most important thing for me was, what I, what I genuinely had to sit down and think, what do I want to do with my life? The idea of creating something was really important for me. Um, actually producing something that I can go, this is physical, I've done this. This is a year of my time. This is three years of my life that I've put into this, this wine, this product. And, you know, you kind of then think about how, how you can also influence other people's lives. So, you know, the blood, sweat and tears that go into a bottle of wine, you know, how many um how many good times have I helped people celebrate by you know them drinking my wine or how many babies have I you know inadvertently made by drinking a little bit too much you know it's kind of it's nice to kind of think that what you're putting out to the world is is probably you know helping people have a little bit more fun or generating good times so yeah it was it was definitely definitely a huge factor um to me is is that kind of hands-on um, approach and being able to yeah get my hands dirty brilliant okay i think it's time that we move on to our get to know me round so this is some random questions some of them are very very random some of them oh, just a little bit random um so our first question that we always like to ask everyone is what's your favorite season Ooh. i think i'm probably gonna go summer i really do enjoy summer i think it's certainly the time where you can see far more happening in the in the vineyard so you've got flowering which turns into fruit sets so you get these very small green berries then they start getting bigger they go through veraison which is they go from green to uh, either white or golden or uh, red um, so it's definitely that period of the year where it seems as though a lot more is happening you know the rest of the year just as much is happening you just can't see it it's in the soil or it's in the in the vine but summer is just a beautiful thing and I think in particular, I just, I'm quite an outdoors sort of person. I really enjoy spearfishing. Um, I like free diving. I like doing that sort of thing. And uh, I mean, yeah, in when I was living in Australia or New Zealand, you can do that sort of thing in the winter. It's not so bad. The water's not so cold, but yeah, the South coast of England um, in the middle of winter is not a place that you want to go. In the middle of autumn, <laughs> it's not a place you want to yeah. go either. <laughs> in the summer it's not a place for me no 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 the amount of times i'll see people in here he's like so i've got this i think my wetsuit came with me from australia and it's it's only a three mil oh no no yeah well that's the thing and i'm like i'm I'm too cheap i'm not buying like a some six mil wetsuit just to just so i can go so i'm like right it's fine i'll just deal with it it's okay i'll just swim a little bit faster and so, but yeah, I see people and they're in their full hoods and gloves and boots. I'm kind 
thinking maybe I should maybe I should get more gear than this. Um, in, this yeah. in this instance I would urge you to follow the pack on that one you don't want to yeah. lose a foot accidentally <laughs> yeah that's a good point to be fair I have just invested in some new six mil boots oh there um, you go fit my fit my fins so hopefully you'll work your way up <laughs> um, yeah it'll kind of slowly but surely <laughs> well, worst case scenario I'll just put a jumper on underneath the wetsuit <laughs> Jeremy Dodgers or Jaffa Cakes Ooh, Jaffa Cakes Jaffa Cakes I I love biting the chocolate off and then kind of peeling peeling the Jaffa, I suppose. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Away, because it always reminds me of you know those like um those sticky things, the gooey sticky things that you'd throw against the wall when you were a child, and they kind of like slowly kind of flop down the wall. Yeah. <laughs> and I've always got this like just desire to fling it at the wall, but I mean it's too tasty to do that. I don't actually do it, but I always think. I wonder if that'd stick to the wall if I threw it. No, putting um, it in your mouth. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's um, although I don't really know where I stand on like, is a Jaffa cake a cake or a biscuit? Wow. Because I think that's quite that's a, a quite a deep podcast. philosophical question. I guess, like many things in life, it is what you want it to be. Very true. Mm. Sunset or sunrise? Ooh, that's a really hard one. Really, really hard one. I'm going to say sunrise. I mean, I absolutely love a sunset. One of my favourite things is kind of get home from work and we, we we're about five minutes drive away from the beach um, mm-hmm. down here. So we'll kind of go and, and try and check out the uh, check out the sunset. Um, and obviously when I used to live in the northwest, kind of that watching the sunset over the coast over there was was beautiful. Um, but I think it's more that you know, that hope that sunrise brings that kind of like just it's why I like spring so much because you, you know suddenly you just start to feel energized by it I'm quite a morning person as well so you kind of doing what we do your morning starts fairly early so yeah I'm, I'm usually in the busy period so it is quite nice that kind of taking that moment with a coffee just to watch the sun come up it's pretty spectacular so yeah, oh, I can right. taste and feel and see what you're seeing right there yeah. <laughs> I'm totally with you on that one the coffee and the sunrise amazing with a touch of crispness in the air beautiful a couple of more ones. These are where we're getting into the realms of a little bit more random. Mm-hmm. If you were a fruit or vegetable, what would you be? Ooh, I play these sorts of games with my wife all the time. I love them. I'm going to go courgette. No one really? said that yet. Yeah. Um, I feel like it can be quite versatile. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they kind of, you could see it in kind of more traditional cuisine, maybe slightly more out there, slightly more exotic um, dishes. So I think we've, uh, I quite enjoy kind of, yeah, being in different environments like the courgette could. But I think at its heart, fairly down to earth, hardy. Yeah, just kind of seems a bit more of a and you at can home in the soil. Wonderfully healthy courgette yeah. noodles with a very fancy tool. True, true. I uh, I can't ever say I've had. Is it? It's courgette, isn't it? That they call it. Um, I yeah. I don't know. I just always I've call it, it a courgette noodle. I courgette. Just, I'm making it yeah. fancy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I just love ratatouille though. Um, mm. Absolutely love those kind of like French stews. Yeah, they kind of they feed my soul. They're kind of like a. And if I'm ever feeling a little bit under the weather, like that kind of french farmhouse vegetable stew is is my go-to sort of Mm. uh, recovery meal you can tell that you do these questions more often than some people because you're really clear (laughs) it was really well put together and it was like you really argued your point very well (laughs) we have to uh, yeah 
whenever we do play these games, you have to justify it. It's almost kind of, we, even when we're at the pub, so we're quite lucky. We've got, um, so we live in Rye down, down in uh, East Sussex. And I think within about a mile radius, there's maybe six or seven young winemakers in the area. So you know, they're all our drinking buddies. So we go to the pub and, you know, suddenly it's like these sorts of questions pop up and yeah, it's like, show your work. You have to show your work, otherwise we'll rip you apart. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've probably had more practice than most. <laughs> okay, we've got two more questions. If you could invite one person to dinner, it can be anybody at all from any historical time frame. They can even be a fictional character. Who would okay. you invite? <laughs> Gandalf the wizard from Lord of the Rings. Yeah. <laughs> Justify. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, to be honest, I think my, my, my motivation in life is to become a hobbit. I just want to live in the countryside. <laughs> I want to potter about barefoot on my land. I want to grow my own vines. Yeah, I want to eat five square meals a day, uh, bake a lot. But yeah, I think, uh, and I'm an absolute Tolkien nerd, you know, down to the point where I think um, they recently published some essays on Middle Earth, which, you know, goes into like the biology of dwarves and elves and why they can't grow beards. And I remember telling my wife this, I'm like, oh, I'm really looking forward to these papers coming out. And she's like, so I, I made a mistake marrying you. <laughs> He's like, no, no, it's really cool. I promise. She's like, no, it's not. Like, yeah, okay, fine. But yeah, I think knowing that, I think the stories and adventures he's been on throughout Middle Earth, I think he'd definitely be a, an interesting chap to chat to over a, a bottle of wine. Likes red wine as well. In The Hobbit, he asks for red wine when he goes into uh, Bilbo Baggins' house for the first time. So uh, yeah, I reckon we could have a good a good yarn over um, over a bottle of red. Maybe Cav Sav. Oh, you guys sound like kindred spirits. <laughs> I hope so. I think maybe I'm more hobbit than wizard, though. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And our final question that we would like to ask you is, what's one thing that you wish everybody knew about winemaking? Ooh, I think just how hard it is, how long it takes. You know, it's, it's, it's not quite the same. Well, it's not the same as beer. You know, if you get a batch of beer wrong, you just... I mean, tip it away and start again. Um, but with wine, you, you're at the mercy of so many variables. Um, so you've got, well, I mean, everything has to go right in the vineyard first for the entire year. And then once you get the fruit into the winery, then everything has to go right in the winery for a year again. And you get one go at it every year. And if it's bad, then it's bad. So yeah, I'd say just how much effort goes into producing it um, and it's constant maintenance as well. It's not like we've made the wine, let's put it away. You know, maturation techniques, whether you put things in oak or whether you put things in stainless steel can inter like affect things and also the long-term effects of, of certain practices. So, you know, if you, if you want to influence the flavour of a wine, you need to do it as early as possible. So let's say you want slight oak influence in your wine, for example, the earlier you get that wine into oak, um, the better. If, for example, you know, six months away from bottle, you go, oh, I want a bit of oak in this. Let's throw some oak chips just to kind of diffuse into the wine. It's not going to be as uh, structured or elegant or subtle. It's going to be quite in your face. So you have to be thinking, you know, a year or two ahead of yourself whilst also thinking in the present at that time. So, yeah, I'd say just how long it takes, you know, the effort required. And how it's it's nowhere near as fancy and as as elegant as people probably assume it is. They kind of 
um, I heard a few friends that like, oh, you must love being a winemaker. You just get to like taste wine all the time, don't you? And it's like, no, no, we, we will taste and we'll blend maybe four days, five days out of the year. Outside of that, it's, it's not all fancy tastings and, and shirts and it's steel toe boots, dirty hands. Um, yeah. Which to be fair, that's the best bit about it, but yeah, I think definitely how long it takes. Brilliant. But we also like to leave everybody with a weather wisdom. And we were wondering if you would like to give us a weather wisdom. I would. Yes. Um, so I actually was taught this by some gnarly old farmer who was basically, he was kind of our um, vineyard manager in Margaret River. Um, I remember sitting, we were sitting on the tractor, I think just having some lunch or we were having maybe a beer in late afternoon crickets were chirping away and he was just like oh do you want to know how to uh work out the temperature i was like well, yeah i've got my phone right here he's like no no no. you can uh you can work out the temperature from cricket chirps and i thought no 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 you, you're pulling my leg here you but i looked it up and it is a real thing i think is it dolber's law or Dol- um I, sh- I should have remembered that but essentially what you do is you count the amount of cricket chirps in eight seconds and then you add five on that for degrees celsius um so I, I think when i did look it up apparently the chap that found this out how he found this out i've no idea he he did it on a specific type of cricket so your average field cricket is not quite as accurate but to give you a general sort of inclination to how warm it is the fact that you can count cricket chirps within eight seconds add five on and you kind of know roughly how how warm it is um i think it's just ridiculous it's just another example of just how incredible nature is and how just yeah we uh we need to pay far more attention to our relationship with with the earth yeah i thought that was ridiculous it was really really cool fact yeah, when i found that out so much of it isn't it all around us the earth has figured itself out long before we came along and long after we go it yeah. will continue working away hopefully we can fix our relationship a bit a bit better so the earth decides we're worth sticking around for yeah absolutely Um, yeah it will shake us off if it needs to so Mm -hmm. the cockroaches will continue to survive though no they'll they'll do fine but they they can't make (laughs) wine though so (laughs) they can't and they can't make a cabernet sauvignon so no they can't (laughs) peter thank you so much for joining us tonight in our podcast it has been absolutely fascinating so thank you very much for everything that you've taught us oh thank you so much for having me so i I could talk about wine all day long um yeah this could have been five hours long if you guys (laughs) um but yeah thank you so much for having me this is fantastic um fantastic to chat to you guys as well if you've enjoyed this as much as we've enjoyed it we would love it if you would subscribe rate review the podcast and share it with anybody that you think that might want to have a little listen you know you could show it while having a glass of wine together why not that would be the perfect time to listen to this podcast you can follow us on instagram there we are for the love of weather on twitter we are the number four love of weather and peter if people want to follow on along and see anything that you're doing or in terms of following on where you make wine is there a website that they can go to yeah yeah um so i've my name's Peter McCauley on Instagram. Um, a lot of my winemaking sort of adventures tend to go up on there. Get uh, Start having a look at Wine GB, Chapel Down, um, social media and the websites, and you can kind of start to see um, particularly events that are kind of happening 
I think if the summer tends to be the best time for it, but yeah, get yourself to English wine country. You know, there are plenty around Hampshire, Essex, uh, East Sussex, Kent. Um, yeah, just get out there and, and experience some, some good old British produce, see what we're doing. And of course, um, if you guys are ever anywhere near us, just please give me a ring, pop down to the winery. I'd love to show you guys around, uh, around the area and see what we're doing and our neighbours are, are doing. I'm always standing my visit. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be bringing a bottle of Capsaf with me. Fantastic. Well, I'll bring the sparkling wine then. Brilliant. <laughs> Thank you as always for listening to our podcast. We really do appreciate it. And we just hope that you leave this episode loving the weather that little bit more. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.